We're going to continue on in our sermon series, going through the Sermon on the Mount. In this series, we've been really exploring uh, the ways in which Jesus teaches and calls the church to be an alternate kind of people, a different kind of community that exists in the world but is not of the world. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30, which is subtitled in my Bible, Adultery, so this is going to be fun. (laughs) But before we do, can we just say another quick word of prayer? (sighs) Jesus, when we read these words, we want to hear your voice. We want to understand what it is that you meant and what it is that you were saying and what it is you continue to say anew in the world today. And so we submit ourselves, we humble ourselves before them, asking that they would examine us, that they would perhaps spark new thoughts and new ideas in our minds that we had not thought before. We give ourselves to you who are the word, and we ask that you would bring new life. And it's in your, your name that we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we can't be sure if he knew what he said, but we do know that he said it. There was a man who stood, a preacher, in front of a crowd of students, and they were an unusually captive audience. He was, after all, talking about a subject matter that is typically taboo in the church, but persistently pervaded the minds and their imaginations. As he stood before them, he held high a magazine, a cosmopolitan magazine. The cover of the magazine pictured a very attractive young woman with long, lean legs and a body of curves, which was revealed in the magazine. And as he waved the magazine around, the preacher pronounced, this is Satan. There's no doubt that preachers and speakers can often misspeak, but part of me shudders at the thought had the sort of maybe implication, the subtle implication that he made, that somehow a woman's beauty was an instrument of Satan. The experience that was recalled by a 28-year-old middle school teacher who served as a youth volunteer in her youth group, and she had brought her youth group to this event as a sponsor, and she worried, as I read her story this week in a book, that the students might sort of receive the subliminal message that the pastor was putting forward. The bottom line being this, that it's up to girls, it's up to the girl to get a hold of the runaway train that is sexuality in the world. Their beauty and their bodies were a problem and if they didn't start covering themselves up, they'd be no better than any other seductress within human history. And while this is not my own story or my own experience, being somebody who grew up in the church my whole life, I think I was there on the seventh day, and had gone to private Christian schools my whole life, this story sort of encapsulates my own experience and memories about how we talked about sexuality, in particular in the passage that we're getting into today, lust, in in my personal experience. I remember the debates and the conversations about length of church 
or of girls' skirts and shorts. I remember the conversation about skin-tight jeans. I remember the conversation about bathing suits at church events and youth events and school events. You better wear that black t-shirt over your bathing suit because men just cannot control themselves or teenage boys cannot control themselves. And these sentiments were part of the reason why at my alma mater, at my high school, they actually changed to making everybody wear uniforms, which started the year after I graduated, so that was awesome for me. But everybody had to wear uniforms because the clothing and the attire was a problem. But Jesus seems to have a very different sentiment when it comes to these issues. And his words in our text this morning, Matthew 5, 27, suggest as much. Let me read them to you. I'm reading from the NIV translation. Jesus teaches us this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's hard to overlook in these words that Jesus was specifically addressing men with his teaching. He doesn't seem to share the sentiment that the beauty of women is a tool of Satan. And men are not imagined to be incapable of controlling their desires and their thoughts. In fact, just the opposite seems to be at the forefront of Jesus' teachings. Men, get control of yourselves. And the violent imagery of gouging out eyes and cutting off hands suggests that the old adage that men just can't help themselves around beautiful women isn't going to be tolerated by Jesus. You see, Jesus, he imagines a world where the disordered, lustful desires of the heart could, in fact, be disciplined. We need to first clear up, perhaps, what exactly Jesus means by lust. Let us say from the start that lust is not that spark of attraction that you feel when you see somebody who is beautiful or handsome or for whatever reason you're just attracted to them, right? This is a misnomer. I like the way the English Standard Version sort of writes this verse is it speaks against the look of lustful intent. That is the issue. It's the look of lustful intent Or as one preacher said it, it is not the first look that gets you, or maybe even the second. It's the third look that convicts. The saying about the third look is a way to distinguish between the mysterious thing about our sexuality that draws men and women to one another in a wonderful and beautiful way and the disordered desires of the heart that sees another person as a means to our own satisfaction. We might say that lust is the improper use of two good gifts from God, our imagination and our sexuality. And it is lust, the disordered desire of our hearts for one another that lies at the heart of adultery. 
And this, according to Jesus, makes adultery a heart issue, not just a body issue. We might imagine that lust is the seed that blossoms into adultery. And like any unwanted plant in a garden, which, by the way, this is total about my life. Yesterday, Paige and I, we're in a house instead of an apartment now. Oh, weeding and taking care of grass and trees. Goodness gracious, we kind of want to move back into an apartment, but I'm so sore. I'm so out of shape, but I'm also sore from all the work we did in the yard yesterday. But like any unwanted plant in a garden, we cannot merely remove what lies above the surface. Instead, we must uproot the whole thing, what is seen and what is unseen. The reason why Jesus addresses men in his teaching here is because they, in Jesus' world and context, held the positions of social, religious, and political power. The literature of his era reveals what we would consider some startling words. If we read some of the literature that was written during the first century of Jesus' life, words like this were actually penned on paper in some of, in fact, Jewish wisdom literature this particular, these words come from. Better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. Better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. Or how about this one? Women contrive in their hearts against men. Then by decking themselves out, they lead men's minds astray. By a look, they implant their poison, and finally, in the act itself, they take them captive. Goodness gracious, could we blame other people a little bit more? But we too discover that in Jesus' world, married men were permitted to engage in extramarital relationships regularly, so long as the woman that they engaged in that relationship with was not married. Because if you had an extramarital relationship with a woman who was married, it was an offense to the man. She was his property, after all. And how dare you abuse and take advantage of another man's property? And it's in this kind of world that it is easy to objectify, abuse, and then blame women for all the consequences of the lustful hearts. But to be clear, this teaching for us in 2019 isn't solely for men. We live in a day and in a world where the impassioned desire of women for men is, in some cases and in many cases, celebrated. You need to be as loose and wild as the men that you see in our society. This is a good thing. But you can be sure that the lustful cravings of both men and women are equally wrong because lust objectifies people, denying their full personhood and turning them into a thing, a thing that we can use for our own gratification, a thing that we can use for our own satisfaction. See, we are not created men and women for sexual purposes alone, at least not according to the Bible. We are created men and women because each of us bears a unique expression of the image of God in the world. Each one of us then ought to be concerned about the the other's moral living, not elevating the good of one over the other, 
We don't say, well, women's goodness is bad and not as good as men's goodness. No, we want, we want to celebrate the moral lives of both genders. Each of us ought to share responsibility for the well-being of our community, not blaming the other for our own failings. Each of us ought to see each other with dignity, not devaluing one another based on our differences. And each of us has something more to bring to the table than our sexuality and our attractiveness. Reducing one another into objects to be desired is to deny the other their full personhood in community. And the Sermon on the Mount is about envisioning the fullness that community was meant to have and to be in the world. Later in the sermon, Jesus will say, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And perhaps I suggest this morning, we might say, is not the body about more than just sex? But there's something additionally, I think, malevolent at work when lustful desire permeates our hearts. If we consider just for a minute where the teaching is placed, it offers insight into an additional danger of the lustful heart. You see, Jesus includes this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is a vision for life within the kingdom of God for God's people. We might say that this is a vision of what the community that we call the church is supposed to look like. And one of the insidious elements about lustful desire is that it promises the very thing it destroys, intimacy. That is, lust promises but can never deliver intimacy. In fact, lustful desire works against the possibility of intimacy and the type of community that Jesus came to establish in the world. You see, the establishment of the church is a creation of a people whose central concern is the well-being of others. We serve one another. We encourage one another. We pray for one another. We reconcile with each other. We show mercy to one another. We mourn for one another. We care for one another's needs. We, in a word, love one another. And what we discover in God's kingdom and in God's economy is that community and intimacy is found in laying our lives down for the sake of others. It's about you, it's not about me. But lustful desire works in opposition to this kind of selflessness. It is selfish. Lustful desire makes our wants, makes my wants and my desires central to my life. It captivates our minds with thoughts of how can I be gratified? How can I be satisfied in my life? It leads us to act and live in a way to attain my desires and meet my perceived needs. Lustful desire cultivates within us a focus on the self, not the focus on another. And in so doing, we forgo the opportunity to experience true intimacy in community and in our sexuality. That makes sense. I like the way Charm Robarts writes it. She's a pastor in Texas. She says it this way. In the church, we can extend and receive true community by resisting the order of this world 
that says that we should try to fix our needs for intimacy by lust and casual sex instead of through the hard work of disciplined affection for each that is based on honoring God and each other. I love that last line. The hard work of disciplined affection for each that is based on honoring God and each other. We need not be reminded in 2019 on Twitter (laughs) that the kind of damage that happens to communities when the seed of lustful desire blossoms into evil action in the world. In recent years, these stories have permeated news media outlets, and it seems as though there isn't a single institution in the world, the church included, in which community and the possibility for intimacy has not been wrecked by disordered, lustful desire of the heart. And while the church has at times made too much of sexuality, Jesus' words here place a demand on his disciples to take the issue of desire seriously because of the implications it has for individuals and for our community. Several years ago, um, I served on a jury that was convened to render a verdict on a sexual assault case. Without getting into the details of the case, let me just say, there were several of us who wept bitterly as we heard the 13-year-old victim give her testimony in the court. It's awful. One of the things that has stayed with me throughout that whole experience um, came through in the voir dire process or the jury selection process. During the selection process, jurors are informed about the nature of the case that they're going to be serving on. And the judge gives jurors the opportunity, you know this, we've all done the jury duty thing, but gives jurors the opportunity to excuse themselves or they're unable to be a part of the case for whatever reason. In this particular case, the judge was mindful of jurors who either personally experienced or had a close friend or spouse or loved one who personally experienced assault of a similar kind. And I use this word assault gentler for the little ears that are in the room. There's a much worse four-letter word that we could use to talk about the case that I sat on. But the process of jury selection took multiple days. Multiple days. I think it was like four days. And after day two, I remember coming home to Paige and sharing with her that this experience was a revelation to me personally. It seemed to me that at least one-third of the prospective jurors was dismissed because they were personally victims or were married to a victim of a similar kind of assault. And I was speechless. I'm still speechless of how many of these crimes, these evil actions, were completely unreported. And frankly, I was naive and ignorant to the pervasiveness of assault in the world. And what's so shocking for the listeners of Jesus here in this teaching, the religious leaders of his day and the disciples, was to think that maybe they hadn't committed the horrific crime or maybe their beds weren't filled with somebody who wasn't their spouse, that regardless, they were no better 
If in their hearts they had lustful desire for another, they're the same in Jesus' economy. Maybe you didn't break the formal rule, but in the kingdom that Jesus came to establish, that isn't good enough. Disobedience, it starts in the heart, and Jesus calls out the heart for examination. Now, let me just say this. I recognize, and I don't want you to think that I'm conflating assault and sort of consensual adultery and lust of the heart as if they had all of the same consequences. They do not, okay? One makes babies, or a couple can make babies, and some of them do not make babies. But the thing that's so shocking about Jesus' teaching here is that it isn't about avoiding the really big consequential things that following Jesus is all about. It is about cultivating a heart that has the capacity to see one another as persons and not objects. It's about cultivating within us a heart that desires and cares for another rather than to use one another. It is about Jesus cultivating within us a heart that permits us and allows us to experience community and intimacy as the designer designed us to have. This is what, by the way, the gospel is all about. It isn't about just believing all of the right things. The thing that we discover in Jesus and what we discover in the Sermon on the Mount in these, these sort of, they call them antitheses technically, but there are these passages where Jesus is sort of revealing what the problem with the law is. And what is the problem with the law is that it's always concerned about the external behaviors that we engage with. It's all about legalism. And what the gospel says and what Jesus proclaims to us is that I want to fix your heart. You have a heart issue. You desire the wrong things, and you do the wrong things. It's not about controlling your behaviors. It's about transforming your inner person and soul. And Jesus says, I can do that. This is the gospel. If you're looking for meaningful community, if you're looking for purpose and mission and moral uprightness, we come to Jesus and we receive the gospel. We say, please change my heart. So Jesus calls out the heart for examination. He calls our hearts out for examination. And the question we have to ask ourselves, what does Jesus see when he sees our hearts? Jesus' call to us this morning and in this passage, he says, you wrestle with the stuff of your heart, right? Like you know that it's kind of messed up and twisted. And, and so Jesus calls us to do something. Jesus calls us to sexual restraint of the eyes and the hands and the heart so that we can escape the kind of hell in which people are objects to be used and not persons to be honored. You see, when our sexual desire is unchecked and unexamined, people are diminished and the possibility for true intimacy and community are significantly limited. And we as a church, and we particularly as men, we need to guard our hearts by submitting our lives to do the things Jesus says here. Jesus' invitation here isn't to literally gouge out your eyes and lop off your hands. Although, strangely enough, some people throughout church history have done that very thing unsuccessfully. And you know why it was unsuccessful? 
is because gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand, it doesn't actually fix the heart issue. See, the call of Jesus, rather, is an invitation to eliminate the sources of our lustful gaze. It is addition by subtraction. For some of us, our smartphones, the web browser on our computers, social media, certain movies or books, a certain coworker or neighbor, the outings and activities of a particular group of friends elicit within us improper desires of the heart. And the call to gouge out or cut off these sources that elicit our hearts in disordered ways isn't so that we can follow the rules. That's not what it's all about. Like, oh yeah, you're getting rid of that thing. You're following the rules. That's good. It is to eliminate those things that anchor us, that weigh us down and keep us from stepping fully into God's kingdom. And it is the refu- it's the refusal to throw more wood on the fire, if you will. So we got to get away and, and break free and loose of these things that have bound us. This is, let me say this, this might sound kind of random, but it's not, hopefully. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why we are going to try and reshape our kids' ministry a little bit so that we have multiple adults serving with each age group of kids in our children's ministry. We are going to guard our community by eliminating as best we possibly can the potential for misconduct by having one adult and one kid in a room together. That is not a good idea. We're gonna gouge out, we're gonna eliminate that thing from our church and our ministry. And this place is a greater demand on the church. It requires more volunteers. It requires you to miss some Sundays in this worship service, but the extra effort and the sacrifice it demands is worth it because of what we gain as a church, safety and protection for our kids. And Jesus, what he's calling us to is he says, those things, it might be a little bit more effort, it might be a little bit more demanding on you, whatever it is that you're wrestling with that you need to eliminate from your life, it might be sort of painful for you to lose that thing, like losing an eye. But what you gain is way greater than what it is that you're losing. And if there's something that has sort of gripped your heart, the call to you this morning is you've got to get rid of that thing. There's a push, I've seen this in some circles, to just get rid of your smartphone and just get a mobile phone <laughs> that flips, right? No screen, no whatever. But if that's the issue, just get rid of it, right? I, I have yet to meet... I have yet to meet in student ministry a teenage boy that did not use their smartphone for illicit purposes. Not one. I don't know one. Get rid of the phone. Get rid of the phone. Parents, don't let them have the phone. (laughs) Right? Gouge it out. Eliminate it. And beyond the elimination, though, from the practices that cultivate lustful desires within us, we need to be people who nurture God-honoring community in our church. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love. And live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If we want to increase our capacity to see each other as persons who bear the image of God, we need to treat each other as such This is why communal practices are so important in the life of the church. We have to be a people that pray for each other. We have to be a people that actually greet one another and know one another. 
We need to be a people who actually encourage one another. We need to be a people who actually care for each other and meet one another's needs. Because you know what happens every single time you engage in a communal practice like that? That person becomes more fully a person to you. They're not just a name or a face or a body who walks into this room. There's somebody who has relationships and friendships. There's somebody who's walking around with pains and hurts in their life. There's somebody who's walking around who's discouraged and needs to be uplifted. And it's through the cultivation of God-honoring community that we begin to experience community. Because we're not just taking things away and just leaving that sort of vacant. We're eliminating certain things in our life and we're engaging in practices that allow us that allow us to see each other as persons and actually have true community. And as we do this, church, we discipline and properly order our affections for one another. This thing that we call the church is to be community built on mutual respect for and partnership with one another and in the work of the kingdom of God. And as we celebrate one another's giftedness honor one another with dignity, and serve alongside one another. We don't just avoid the trappings of a lustful heart, but cultivate a community with true intimacy and connectedness. Our society is wrestling with many issues that might be connected to this teaching of Jesus, right? Larry Nasser and USA Gymnastics, Jeffrey Epstein, church scandals just across the board. Larry Weinstein in Hollywood, and the Me Too movement, right? And let us not forget all of those who are victims of inappropriate and disordered desire who have never shared their story. They might be sitting in this room, I don't know. Statistically, there's a lot sitting in this room. And can you imagine, though, what a community that had properly ordered desires and affections might have to offer a world that was wrestling with such brokenness. Imagine how we might talk to our sons a little bit better and a little bit differently. Imagine how we might talk to our daughters a little bit better and a little bit differently about what it meant to be a woman. Imagine how we might live differently with with hearts that see others as whole persons and bearers of God's image. Imagine how that community might offer a space and a place for wounded people to be healed. To perhaps for the first time in their lives recognize, wait, I'm a person that has value and infinite worth. Imagine how that community might serve those that live outside of its walls. Just imagine, just imagine a community like that. What that might do. And we as a church in the coming days, months, years of our life together, if we're doing effective ministry, if we're doing effective evangelism, if we're we're caring for our community here, people are going to walk in our doors who have dealt with this stuff personally. Are we going to be the kind of church that perpetuates that sort of sin and evil or the kind of community and the kind of church that offers them a space and a place to be seen as persons and they might experience community and intimacy in a healthy way for the first time in their lives. Imagine us being that kind of church. How cool, would that be amazing? Imagine that we might be that church. Maybe we'll be that church. Maybe we'll be those people in Ventura, California in 2019. Imagine, imagine a people like that. 
Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, it's crazy how you wrestle with us collectively and as individuals in the same text, in the same teaching, how it hits so many different layers and notes of our lives. Some of those in this room perhaps have been scarred by the improper and disordered and evil desire that has filled the heart of another. Our prayer, Lord, is that perhaps this morning and perhaps in their lives and perhaps they just need to be reminded that they are an image bearer of yours, that they are a good creation, that they matter, that they have something to offer the church and the world. For those who are wrestling with disordered desire in their own hearts, God, give them courage. Give them courage to gouge out and eliminate those things that are gripping and binding their hearts, just suffocating the life in them. But God, we want to be the church. We want to be a people who see one another as full persons. We want to see the potential of what we could become collectively because of who you created us to be. And this this issue of desire is an obstacle in that pursuit. And so we ask God, would you continue to purify and sanctify your people that we might see one another as you see us. And in so doing, would we become the types of people that can create space for victims to come and be healed and restored. As we see one another as full persons, would you continue to extend our ministry into this community and into the world for your honor and for your glory, Jesus? We are your church, oh God. We are your sheep. Give us the strength to follow your voice this day. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness, holiness is what you want from me. Faithfulness, faithfulness is what I long for.
church, as you go from this place this week and seek to be people who have pure hearts, may you receive the blessing, as Jesus says, to see God as you do. Go in his peace and grace. Amen.